Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Thank you, Kirsten. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you all here. Uh, thank you, Jeff and Hoon Call. I almost feel like after hearing those stories, I don't even need to preach this morning. I can just pray. We can all go to Easter brunch and do whatever else we need to do. I almost feel that way. A little disappointed in how many of you seemed anxious to take me up on that, but great to see you here this morning. And uh, now that you're warmed up, he is risen. Guys, we haven't been able to do this for two years live, all right? So let's do it again. He is risen. He is risen Great, awesome. Great to see all of you here this morning. It is a special Sunday, and dare I say, the most special Sunday in the entire year. It is the gathering of all gatherings. We do a bunch of things here at North Bible Church throughout the year with small groups and Bible studies, and of course our Sunday morning gathering, but this Sunday is special. It is unlike any other because of what we celebrate this morning. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you know it's special this morning because Aaron has product in his hair this morning, and so it is a special special day. But here's why today is so special. We are so glad that you're here with us this morning. Today, as you know, we talked about is the, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what you might not know is that the reason that the celebration of the resurrection is so important, because as Christians, we believe that the resurrection of Jesus was the most significant event that has happened in all of history. In all of human history. In fact, it is so significant that if the resurrection event did not happen, then the Christian faith means absolutely nothing. The Christian faith itself is empty. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then it means everything. And I know that's typical hyperbolic language that you might hear on a sermon and a sermon on a Sunday morning. But really, in reality, This is not hyperbole. This is not exaggeration. It is true. Listen to what the Bible says about this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, it says, If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is in vain. Of course, that word vain means nothing. The Bible tells us that what we are celebrating today, the resurrection of Jesus, if it never happened, then Christianity itself is empty. It holds nothing of true value because what we hold to be true as central to our faith is actually false if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. The fact that Jesus lived as a teacher does absolutely nothing if Jesus himself wasn't the Son of God who died and rose again. Listen to how Tim Keller puts this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. I love that, because there's no middle ground here, and it's exactly how the Bible presents this to us. There's no safe place to hide if, in terms of the claims of Jesus. If you like the idea of Jesus, or you like his teaching, but he died and never rose again, then his teachings are basically like uh, any other philosopher, or religious teacher, or maybe even a prophet. But certainly, he's not the Son of God. And maybe those words that Jesus spoke were inspiring words. Maybe they're the kinds of words that you would put on a meme and then post it on your Facebook page. But in reality, do they have the power of the Son of God if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Now look, if you don't like Jesus' teachings and he didn't rise from the dead, it doesn't matter anyway. But if Jesus rose from the dead, then his words are the very words of the eternal Son of God. And we ignore them 
to our own peril. And sure enough, a few verses later, after what we just read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 20, Paul tells us, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And then he continues from there to talk about if Jesus did raise Christ from the dead, if the resurrection happened, then it really does change everything. Verse 21 says this, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And we said the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And we just heard from this passage, a lot actually changes, all of which is seen in the redemption of creation that hangs on the resurrection event of Jesus. That resurrection from the dead is possible for us in Christ. That eternal life through Jesus is possible. That Jesus will bring his kingdom, which puts an end to all earthly earthly authority and injustice, defeats once and for all all of his enemies, evil, and then finally, death itself. And in the end, the perfect reign of God permeates everything, as God is all in all. All of this hangs on the resurrection of Jesus. If it didn't happen, it was just wishful thinking, all these things. A nice idea, but a fairy tale in the end, if Jesus really didn't rise from the dead. But since it did happen, Jesus really is God in the flesh. Because after all, who can defeat death itself? Jeff said in his video, death and taxes are the things that are guaranteed to all of us. But of course, in Jesus, he defeats death and he defeats taxes. Because the good news is there's not going to be taxes in the kingdom of heaven, which is awesome. Especially for this time of year, (laughs) realizing that promise. But the Apostle Paul puts it this way. In Philippians 3.10, I want to know the power of his resurrection. This leads us to something we're going to be talking about this morning. This morning, I want to encourage you to know the resurrection. We're going to talk about what it means to know the resurrection. Which means at least two things. One, knowing that the resurrection already has happened and actually has happened, which we've talked about. If the resurrection happened, it changes everything globally and historically. But also, knowing the resurrection means that it impacts us in some way. And so knowing the resurrection on this side also means how has the resurrection changed you? How has it impacted your life personally? Because if it changes everything, it's meant to change our lives as well. The story of Easter is the greatest love story you'll ever hear. It's a love story initiated by God, pursuing you to the very point of death. And as we're going to see today, the purpose of all salvation work of Jesus is to bring you to himself, so that you can be united with him, so that you can be with him. And to tell you what I mean, I want to take you to a scene from the Bible. It's found in Luke chapter 24. This scene takes place right after, a little, little, little bit after the resurrection scene that we saw, uh, or that we heard earlier that opened up our service, where the two, men went, or the two women went to the open and empty tomb, and they saw what they saw on the resurrection morning. 
Later on, in Luke chapter 24, Luke records another event that happened that same day. And it starts in verse 13. We know it as the road to Emmaus. But it says this in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And then how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, now it is the third day since these things have happened. And moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, as I mentioned before, this is the scene that's commonly known as the road to Emmaus. And as we're told, this interaction happens between Jesus and two of his disciples. Now, these two disciples were not part of the 11 or the 12 apostles. And so we understand them to be two of the disciples who were a part of the larger group of those who were following Jesus during his ministry. In fact, we're only told one of their names, a man by the name of Cleopas. And these men have left the city of Jerusalem and are heading to a town by the name of Emmaus. This is on the resurrection day. And one of the things that's amazing is that they are leaving after the reports have come back from the tomb from two of the women who are disciples of Jesus, as well as others, including Peter, who went to the tomb and found the tomb empty that morning and have come back and had said, we found the tomb empty. The angels told us that Jesus rose again. And even after hearing those reports, these two men leave the city of Jerusalem and are heading to Emmaus. So the question is, the question that we probably want to answer in all this is, why is it that these men are leaving Jerusalem? Why are they leaving this big city where all their friends with all of Jesus' followers have just heard that Jesus has risen from the dead and heading to this small, no-name town called Emmaus? Well, we're not told exactly why. Maybe Emmaus was the hometown for these two men. And they had decided if Jesus, once Jesus was arrested and put to death, that he's not really the Messiah, and so let's just go home and start all over again. Maybe they saw what the religious leaders and the Roman authorities had done to Jesus, and they thought to themselves, if we get recognized, it's only a matter of time before they do the same thing to us as followers of Jesus. And so they were scared, and they fled the city. Maybe they, were just, maybe they had just had enough of it all, and they were obviously so despondent that they just wanted to get out of the city and go somewhere else. Whatever the case may be, as they're heading away from the city of Jerusalem, away from God's city to Emmaus, Jesus comes up beside them, post-resurrected Jesus. And he cuts into their conversation, mid-conversation, and essentially asks them, what are you guys talking about? 
And we're told immediately that they are kept from recognizing him. One of the great aspects or dynamics of this story, as Luke writes it, is that as the reader, we know it's Jesus talking to them, but these men have not recognized Jesus. And so we get to see how Jesus kind of plays with them a little bit, right? And he asks them, well, what are you guys talking about? And they said, we're talking about all the things that happened in the city of Jerusalem. And I love Jesus' question, what things? And they look at him and they say, well, all these things, we'd hoped that Jesus of Nazareth, that he was the Messiah, and this past week he rode into the city of Jerusalem uh, on the Sunday before the Passover, and then, uh, and, then he, and then he confronted religious leaders, and he taught in the temple, and he healed people. And then he was arrested and crucified at the hands of the Romans. And oh, by the way, the women who were with us and some of the other disciples offered this story that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, obviously... If these two men are leaving the city of Jerusalem, of course, they didn't believe the accounts of those who had said that Jesus had risen. And so as they're walking down this road to Emmaus, to Emmaus, Jesus is talking to them. And he essentially says to them, well, what happened? And as we're told, they're, as they're talking, they're obviously downcast. It even says that they're sad. And they basically say to him, have you not seen what's going on? And which is a basically, I mean, there's kind of this, you, you, you see their emotion, you're told what their emotion is, but you also see their emotion in the response to Jesus. There's almost kind of like this sad sarcasm that goes on. Well, you've been living under a rock for the past week? Have you not seen? Did you not hear what has happened in the city? And then out of their disappointment, maybe even their despair, they admit we had hoped that he was the Messiah. With the implication being, we no longer believe that he is. These men had never dreamed that something like this was possible. That a man could rise from the dead and that even more unbelievably, that the Son of God could die at the hands of the pagan Romans. It was beyond their understanding to even think that the Messiah could die in this way, this humiliating and painful death. These Jewish men were expecting their king, their Messiah, to have full authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. And so they never would have expected Jesus to die in the way that he did. So when they say we had hoped that he was the Messiah, what exactly what they, they, were they saying? We, they were saying we expected our guy to win. We expected, because Israel had been on such a losing streak. I mean, generation after generation. It's worse than the Phoenix Suns over the past 10 years, minus this year. They had been on a losing streak. Every empire the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans had taken turns ruling over Israel. And these men just wanted to be winners again. And from their perspective, these, from the perspective of these two men, Jesus lost. Except one of the things that we see, in, again, in the great dynamic of, of Luke's reporting here as we read through it, is that we know that Jesus has won a greater victory than either, either one of them could ever imagine. And why is it that they missed it? They missed it because they were looking for the wrong thing. They wanted Jesus for what Jesus, they wanted Jesus on their terms. What Jesus would do for them. Conquer the Romans. Give us political freedom. Give us prosperity in the world. Save our reputations as Jews. Relieve the oppression of our families. Of course, all good and reasonable things, but their preoccupation with seeing Jesus on their terms led them to miss the Son of God when he was standing right there talking and walking with them. I think one of the big takeaways for us in this story is that what they missed, these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, 
is often what we miss when we come to God. We want God on our terms. And when that doesn't happen, when he does something different than what we might expect, we either conclude that he doesn't care, uh, that he can't help us, or maybe even that he doesn't exist. One of the, and what we don't realize is that we have limited our perspective so much by forcing God to come on our terms that just as the disciples were kept from seeing Jesus, we have kept ourselves from seeing him. And look, I think we've all been there. We've all been in places where we believe the right things about God. But when it comes to really having faith in the God who is, sometimes we totally miss it, even when he's standing right in front of us. Consider who these two disciples were. They knew the scriptures. They knew what they should believe. As Jewish men, they grew up memorizing large chunks of scripture and knowing the Old Testament as well as anything else they knew in their life. They even walked with Jesus during his ministry. They were part of the group who followed Jesus and saw Jesus performing miracles and teaching in person. And one of the great elements and irony of this story is that when Jesus approaches them post-resurrection, they don't even recognize him. They completely miss it. And to help them see better, Jesus takes them to the scriptures, to the Bible, to specifically show them from the Old Testament, from Moses and the prophets, what actually was to be expected of this Messiah. And the story continues for us in verse 28. And it says this, So they drew near to the village to which they were going, which was Emmaus, and Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And that they rose that very same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were gathered with them together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. And has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, here's something that we need to see as we read through this, and maybe you've noticed it as we've been reading through the story. How many times Luke talks about seeing? Right? There's the physical seeing, but then there's also the spiritual seeing. They're kept from seeing, but then their eyes are opened and they see and recognize Jesus. We know on the one hand, he's talking about natural seeing, right? And there's kind of this play on words, like, of course, they see Jesus come up when he comes up to them on the road. They see the road they're walking on. They see one another from a natural sense. But in the entire time, what we're being told in the background is that they fail to actually see spiritually what is going on and what is happening. They see Jesus, but they don't really see him. In the account, there's some great imagery that's used here. We're told that the disciples arrive then at Emmaus with Jesus, and it's late in the day. So in order to show hospitality to this stranger that has joined them on the road, they invite him to stay and have dinner. And I love how it says that Jesus pretended like he was going a little farther, and then they call him back and invite him to sit down and have dinner. But they don't recognize Jesus, or they're kept from recognizing Jesus, until they invite him to sit down and have dinner with them. Now, keep in mind, this is after walking an entire day with him, a seven-mile trip from the city of Jerusalem to the town of Emmaus. After hearing Jesus talk with them, after hearing Jesus teach them the Bible, talking about all about the Old Testament and who the Messiah is supposed to be, they don't actually recognize him until they sit down and have dinner with him. In fact, Luke 
says they sit down at the table with him, which is important to see. In verse 30, he says they sit down at the table. So why does seeing happen at dinner of all places? Well, because as he sits down at the table, of course, the table in the ancient world and in Scripture represents something more than just eating. In fact, we're not even told, there's not an emphasis too much on what they're eating, really. It's about the fact that they join together at the table. The table implies relationship. It implies communion. It implies connection. It implies sharing life with one another. And to add an extra element to this, notice that Luke says something really profound and important here. He says that they recognized him once he broke the bread. If you take that phrase, if you're reading through the Gospel of Luke, it would have reminded you of something that Luke said a couple of chapters before. When Jesus was in the upper room with the disciples, and he broke the bread at the communion table with them, instituting the new covenant, and talking about the elements of what we call communion, the communion meal. And what Jesus is representing is that this broken, this, this piece of bread broken was my body broken for you on the cross. And so what happens is that what, what happens to these two men, and when they see this, the breaking of bread, and they realize what in the moment it represents, they begin to see, because they begin to see Jesus on his terms instead of their terms. They see the crucified Messiah on the cross who has given his life for their redemption and who rose again so that they might have eternal life. And it changes everything about what they're seeing. And I think there's another element to this story that often gets overlooked. Luke makes a point to tell us that immediately after they see, at that same hour, in other words, right away, they get up and they go back to the city of Jerusalem. They go back to the city of God. They go back to the place where God's presence is represented. They go from this place that is Emmaus, the wilderness, the, wonder, the, the, the land that, 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 that has nothing to it, the land that has no purpose, and they go back to the city that is full of purpose, representing God's presence, the city of Jerusalem. And their journey to Emmaus represents their spiritual journey of walking away. Again, the text doesn't tell us anything about why they went to Emmaus, but when we see that they go back to Jerusalem, what we can't escape is this reality that this is supposed to represent the fact that they are wandering and they're lost on their way. And it's while they are on their way wandering and lost that Jesus goes out to bring them back. Not just to Jerusalem, not just to the other disciples, but to himself, to unite them with him. And I think in many ways, a lot of us may resonate with this story. Because I think this represents a lot of people's spiritual journeys. We wander from Jerusalem, the place where God is. We end up going towards Emmaus. We're not really sure why or how we got there. Maybe we're lost, wandering, not knowing exactly where we're going. Maybe we're convinced that we know where we're going, but in the end, we're pointed towards Emmaus rather than the place where God is. But I also think that in those times, in that road to nowhere, Jesus chases us down by his grace and by his mercy. And if we're willing to sit with him, we might see him for who he really is. Now, this is April 4th, it's the month of April, and I point that out because the month of April takes on a special meaning for me. Because it's an anniversary of sorts, or maybe even more, more specifically a birthday. April 21st is the date that my eyes were opened 22 years ago to see Jesus for who he really is. And I really connect to the story, to the place of these two men, Cleopas and his friend, because I grew up in the church. 
I knew the scriptures. I was in their place where like my entire life growing up in the church and with all the VBS events, all the student camps, memorized scripture in my Sunday school class, was around church all the time. I knew the scriptures, or at least I thought I knew the scriptures. And yet I found myself later on in life wandering out to Emmaus, convinced that I knew where I was going, and yet in the end, really lost. And when I was 19 years old, Jesus came to me and found me there. He didn't find me on a desert road on the way from the city of Jerusalem to Emmaus, but I had a similar experience where my heart burned inside of me the first time I realized this is actually the truth of the gospel, that Jesus has come to me, that Jesus has come so that I might be forgiven and brought to him. Not just as a story that is out there somewhere, or as a set of beliefs to believe, but as an experience in which Jesus has brought me to himself through the power of the resurrection. Earlier I told you I'd be challenging you, or encouraging you to know the resurrection of Jesus today. Again, I think there are two ways to know the resurrection, or two ways that we have to know the resurrection. First of all, one is believing that the resurrection actually happened as a historical event. That Jesus Christ, after being killed on a Roman cross, was dead and buried on a Friday about 2,000 years ago. And that he rose again and came back to life that following Sunday morning. The disciples in the early church certainly believed this. We see it in this story. But as we begin to kind of play out the story to the end of the Gospels and into the book of Acts and throughout church history, what we see is that immediately there was this huge groundswell of hundreds and thousands of people who believed in Jesus and began worshiping him in the early church. And one of the things that we realize is that something happened that changed that, that, that group of disciples in such a way that they influenced hundreds and thousands of people that became the early church. And I think what we can simply say is that people don't worship a dead teacher who claimed to be the Messiah. What we see is that the resurrection was a historical event because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he was just like all the other countless teachers who, who came around claiming to be the Messiah, which was a common thing at the time. And we don't hear about all these other false messiahs, but we do hear about Jesus. And as the scripture tells us, Jesus appeared to the disciples and even 500 disciples at one time after he rose from the dead. And so what we see there is the evidence of the fact that these 500, along with the others, began that early movement that was the church. And they worshiped Jesus because they believed that the resurrection happened, because they saw the empty tomb and they saw the resurrected Jesus firsthand. Secondly, when you read the gospel accounts, these gospel writers actually name some of the people who saw the empty tomb or who interacted with post-resurrection Jesus. In other words, what they're doing in these accounts, and these gospel accounts were written during the time where those people who saw Jesus, those people who saw the empty tomb were still alive. And so what the gospel writers are saying is, look, if you don't believe us, go ask them. They're still around. You can ask them if they saw Jesus after the resurrection. You can ask them if they saw the empty tomb. They're inviting us to challenge and check the validity of this event. And then finally, many of those who were Jesus' closest followers and the early leaders in the early church, we know from church tradition, were actually killed because of their faith. All of the 12 minus Judas, so the 11 that are mentioned here in Luke chapter 24, were eventually martyred or killed because of their faith. 
And a lot of those who were a part of that larger group in the early church were either thrown in, thrown in jail or killed as well for their faith. And the fact that so many people would die for believing in Jesus and teaching about Jesus tells us that something amazing happened so that they would take this and they would proclaim this truth even to their death. And keep in mind that many of these people, including people like Peter, most notably, were people who denied Jesus, betrayed him, abandoned him once he was arrested and crucified. And yet, later on, they were willing to give their very lives for the truth of the resurrection. Something had to happen in their lives to change that. And according to the Bible, that was the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I realize that some will argue that the historical accuracy of a resurrection event cannot be proven beyond any doubt. In other words, we can't just take these anecdotes and all the other several things that talk about the historical validity of the resurrection of Jesus. But in reality, we can't do that with really any historical events, right? I mean, how do we know that Alexander the Great existed and that he conquered 40% of the known world at the time? None of us, uh, none of us were there, and no one is alive today that was alive in 360 B.C., when Alexander the Great was around. But we trust in the historical accounts about his life. How do we know Julius Caesar existed? How do we know the American Civil War happened? How do we know who won the Civil War? And how do we know Abraham Lincoln's role in the Civil War? We know all these things because of historical accounts that have come down to us. The historical evidence of Jesus and the resurrection is the same. It points overwhelmingly to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, and that's an event that actually happened in history. Now, I said earlier, knowing that the resurrection event happened is one thing. If you believe that, you're halfway there, but you're not all the way there. If you only believe that the resurrection happened as an event somewhere, then, and your faith stops there, it's not really saving faith. In fact, we just got out of the book of James, and one of the things that James says is, if you believe that God exists, that's great. So do the demons. They believe that God exists. But where exactly does faith come into the equation? Look, the demons know that Jesus rose from the dead. They saw it happen. They know that it happened. But it doesn't save them. Saving knowledge is the second part of the resurrection knowledge. It is, no, it is the knowing that believes that the resurrection really does change everything that it changed the world, and that it changes our lives. It's the difference between an acknowledgement of an event that happened 2,000 years ago on the other side of the planet and an event that actually makes a difference in your life. The event that is being done for you so that you could be saved, given eternal life, and be brought back to God. It's not merely believing that Jesus did something miraculous, but it's believing that that miracle saves you and gives you eternal life. In the example of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, it was the difference between what they were saying at the beginning and really what they said at the end. Did you catch that? At the beginning, they were saying, well, some people said this thing happened, and we're not sure whether we believe it, but it was obvious that it didn't mean anything to them because they were leaving the city of Jerusalem, leaving all that behind and going to Emmaus to hide out, to start a new life, whatever it may be. But at the end of this account, it became personal for them. And they ran back to the city of Jerusalem proclaiming, He has risen indeed. It changed their lives. And it changed what they believed about the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus. It was what Paul said about, I want to know the power of the resurrection and how it impacts me. 
Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. There Jesus is saying again, I will eat with him. There's that imagery again of Jesus eating with us, sitting at the table with us in fellowship. In some ways, I really can't wait for heaven because if these, all these images about eating are any indication, there's going to be a lot of eating in heaven. I'm really happy about that. But here's the point of this. If you're not sure whether you are with God, here's one simple question. Do you eat with Jesus? Do you sit at the table with him? Is that the place where you feel at home? Is that what your life looks like? Does it feel at home to sit with Jesus in this way? Because it's all about what we see in the end. What do you see? What you see determines everything. Do you see through eyes of faith to see Jesus who he, as who he claims to be? Your creator, your savior, the one who truly loves you and has shown his love for you by, uh, by saving you for, from your sins so that you can be with him and be brought back to him? Does that matter to you? Because he sees you and whether you realize it or not, he is walking with you and inviting you to the table. Do you see him? As I said earlier, I think all of us at one time or another are kind of on that road to Emmaus. Not really sure where we're going. Maybe we're not really sure what we expect when we get there. We're wandering in life. We feel lost. There may be some echoes of, yeah, somebody said something about this Jesus who was resurrected. I'm not really sure I believe that, though, for various reasons. Or, yeah, I think I believe that, but I just, I don't really know how real that is for me. I think it's great for those people to believe it, but I'm not really sure that speaks to me in my life. Know this morning that Jesus is walking with you and he invites you to the table. He invites you to receive the salvation that he has won for you that we celebrate this weekend. The death of Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin and the resurrection of Jesus so that we might be brought back to him and have eternal life. And so this morning as we respond, I'm just going to ask you to do one simple thing. I'm going to ask you to say one simple prayer to God. And you may not be a praying person. Prayer is just really just talking to God. You don't have to say it audibly, just say it to yourself or say it to God uh, silently. But I want you to answer this question between you and God. How do you see Jesus right now, right here in this moment? How do you see Jesus? And be as honest as you can. Maybe you're in the place with God where you say, I just, I don't think I can believe this. Somebody brought me here and I'm here because somebody told me I had to be here and I'm looking forward to eating lunch and now you're cutting into my lunch hour. Maybe that's how you feel. But you know what? God can handle that. Maybe you're in a place where it's, yeah, I know the resurrection happened, but again, I just don't know really how it affects my life. I'm a little fuzzy on that. Let God know that. And this morning as we close, we are going to have a couple of, uh, what do we call our prayer partners? They're going to be located here on each side of the stage. Um, as we sing together and we close in this song, I'm going to pray for us. And you pray that prayer to God, but if you need someone to pray with, if you have some questions about, man, this is really fuzzy and I need someone to help me sort this out. There are some things I heard that are intriguing, but at the same time, I don't know exactly what that means for me. Those folks will be happy to talk with you about it or pray with you about it.
And so I'm going to give us a couple of minutes right now just to be in silence for a minute or so while you pray to God. How do you see Jesus in this moment? Tell God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you see us. You see every person here. You see every heart here. Lord, you know exactly what is going on in each one of our lives. You walk with us. Lord, you've invited us to sit down at the table of fellowship with you. You've invited us to know you, to converse with you. And it's because of your cross and the empty grave that that way has been made possible. And so what we celebrate this week is truly the most important thing that has happened in human history. It changes everything. And we use that phrase all the time, Lord, I pray that it wouldn't be lost on us as a cliche, but that we would truly think about how it is that the resurrection of the Son of God literally does change everything that we know, changes everything we see, it changes everything we expect, and it changes our very lives. It changes our nature from those who are dead in sin to those who rise again to eternal life. I pray for those who are in a place where they're trying to make sense of this. Lord, you know this about us. It's not natural for us to just Consider this reasonable or logical. This gospel message, this gospel story is supernatural. It goes beyond how we would do it, how we would understand it. We see that in the reaction of these two disciples that you've shown us in Luke chapter 24 today. We thank you for stories like this because they show us exactly where we may be in the place as well. And we realize that your words are living and they are active and those very same things that happened 2,000 years ago with those men on the road to Emmaus is still happening in the lives of people today. So we pray, Lord, that we would be able to see you through eyes of faith. Give us the faith to see you as you are. Not God on my own terms, not God... Uh, not God through my own lens, not God that doesn't fit my own paradigm, but Lord, destroy all of those paradigms and replace it with a perspective that sees from the resurrection and the power of what that resurrection means for us. Lord, we love you. We know that it is out of your love that you have done these great things for us. We pray for the faith to be able to respond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Thank you again for joining us on this Easter Sunday. As you leave today, 
Uh, tell somebody who, who you came with uh, one thing that impacted you uh, this morning. Whatever it was, uh, the, the stories that we heard, the songs that we sang, the scripture that we read today and talked about this morning, one thing that impacted you, uh, because this is a day that we celebrate new life, we celebrate transformation, and we are uh, convinced in knowing that our God is an active God who is still moving in our lives. And as you celebrate today, uh, if you have time this afternoon, tune in to ESPN at 3 o'clock, watch the Lady Wildcats win a national championship in basketball. Bear down, everybody. Have a great day. Have a, have a blessed day, a blessed Easter celebration uh, with your family and friends, and we'll see you sometime soon. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.